Well, hello. My name is Angel Wood, and this is Crime of the Truest Kind. Season's greetings. This is the last episode, episodes of 2023. Thank you for being here. I have news on live events to share with you. I am using my brand new headphones. My Sennheisers, my Sennies, that I loved very much and had for, oh, about a dozen years, have been sidelined because my dear poppy, the puppy, bit through the cord and I need to have them repaired. Such is life. I look forward to the new year and how crime of the truest kind will grow. Reaching new listeners, more live events, advocacy and action, new collaborations, monthly minis for patrons on Patreon. So please share the show, post about it in your forums and your Facebook groups, share it on social media and tag me. Tell your friends and colleagues Drop a great review. Tell me what you like about the show and what you would like to see in the year ahead. This episode is about a missing woman who disappeared from her friends and family 23 years ago. A woman who was in an abusive relationship. This is about domestic violence, about a woman trying to end her marriage. It's also about a family that has never stopped trying to find out what happened. In the second half of this episode, I talked to Stephen DeMora, Deborah Mello's brother-in-law, and a familiar face in the family's fight for justice for Deborah. This is episode 55, part one. The suspicious disappearance of Deborah Mello, Taunton, Massachusetts. For the entire time I was aware of the disappearance of Deborah Marie Mello, the 30-year-old mother of two children from Taunton, Massachusetts, who went missing on June 20th, 2000, I thought the last place she was seen was on the side of Route 18 in Weymouth. On the surface, we could believe the story that she and her husband of 14 years, Louis Mello Sr., got in a fight about spending money on face cream after she visited the doctor's office, and she demanded to get out of the car and walk, leaving all of her possessions back in the car. That is only a part of this story. Taunton, Massachusetts, where Deborah Marie Wally, as she was known for the first half of her life, is a town in the south shore of Massachusetts, pronounced Taunton, Taunton, or Taunton, as I've heard over the years, but not Taunton. The Tauntaun is a species of snow lizard found roaming the snowy plains of Hoth. Taunton is situated on the Taunton River, which winds its way through the city. According to the World's Population Review, as of 2023, Taunton has a population of 59,945, up slightly from the 2020 census, with a recorded population of 59,428. Known as the Silver City, it was the historic center of the silver industry beginning in the 19th century. 
producing lots of fine quality silver goods. In fact, silver might still be the biggest part of the city's identity. The Reed and Barton Company produced Olympic medals and silverware used exclusively for the White House. The anchor for the USS Constitution was made there. Now that's two mentions of old Ironsides on this show just this month. There was the Silver City Bulletin. Taunton native and touring musician Sarah Borges named her 2005 record Silver City. Now, what doesn't resonate with the kid growing up like their hometown mall? The Silver City Galleria, the -the state-of-the-art shopping metropolis when it opened on March 1st, 1992. A reported 12,000 cars descended on that new mall. Two levels and 1.1 million square feet. The Galleria was one of the largest malls in New England. And mall marketing was a thing. I think the singer Tiffany became famous solely based on the mall gig she did. Bozo the Clown appeared at Silver City. Richard Simmons taped his farewell to fat infomercial there, where he inspired Joni from Taunton to lose weight. I know some of you want this very bad. I know some of you are living in a body that you don't want to live in anymore. What's wrong? Come here. Come here. Shh. What's wrong? Nothing. Where are you crying? Oh, I always loved you and I always admired what you've done for so many people. And and I just lost my husband at Christmas time and I've been so sad and all I do is eat. And I, this is my last chance. I really wanted you to try to help me. And I know I can do it now. We're all here to help you. Thanks. We're all here to help her, aren't we? Did Joan start that day? Richard had to know because he could not forget her commitment. So he launched a search to find her. Richard believes if you're committed, you cannot fail. And Joni proved him right. When they called me on the phone, uh, they said that Richard had been touched by what I had said at the mall and that he wanted to find out who I was and how I was doing. Since I saw Richard Simmons in, in Taunton, I've lost about 32 pounds and it's, it's exciting for me because it's only been uh, a couple of months since then. And if I can do this now and lose the 30 pounds, I know I can, I'm well on my way and I know that I can keep continue. He is a caring person um, and an inspiration to all people. That is Joni in 1996, after meeting Richard Simmons at Silver City Galleria in Taunton. A true inspiration. Even Marky Mark and some of the Funky Bunch made an appearance at Silver City. It is also the same mall that made headlines in 2016. A man drove his car into the mall entrance and attacked shoppers. We learned that he caused an accident by crossing into the path of another car, then entering the home of two Taunton women, attacking them and killing one. 80-year-old Patricia Slavin died from her wounds. Kathleen Slavin was seriously injured. The man fled, drove his car to Silver City Galleria, crashed into Macy's front entrance, and physically assaulted several women there before moving into the Bertucci's restaurant where he attacked staff and customers, one of whom was a pregnant server named Sheena. Sounds like he was targeting women. A man named George Heath, who was in the restaurant eating, saw Sheena's attack and came to her aid. George Heath was also stabbed. 
Plymouth County Sheriff's Deputy Jimmy Creed was off duty in there having dinner with his wife that night. Deputy Creed saw the assaults taking place. He approached the man, ordered him to drop the weapon. When he did not, he shot him, very possibly saving more lives. That man, Arthur DeRosa, murdered Patricia Slavin in her home and George Heath in the restaurant that night. DeRosa, who was 28 at the time, was later described as mentally disturbed. Visiting Morton Hospital in Taunton to receive psychiatric help the day before the attacks, but they released him. Arthur DeRosa was shot and killed by the deputy that night. Silver City Gallery served the people of Taunton and the surrounding area for close to 30 years. Closing on February 29, 2020, the mall was demolished on May 9, 2021. There is a site dedicated to the mall, silvercitygalleria.org. Now, I bet local kids will have a ton of nostalgic feelings looking at that. I mean, I did, and I didn't even live anywhere near Taunton. But I do remember when my old-timey mall was redeveloped. I was a little sad about it. Of course, I rabbit holed for a minute and did find a terrible video of the old Nashville mall shot sometime in the 1980s. It had a Bradley's. The store I stole a pack of CoverGirl blush from one time because my best friend at the time turned out to be an ardent shoplifter and sort of dared me to nab something. She and another girl later got caught stealing from a few stores in that mall. They got really brazen about it. I guess I wasn't that much fun to her, seeing as I didn't want to participate. I didn't get any kind of rush from stuffing things that didn't belong to me into my pockets. And I don't really remember what happened to them. If they got the police involved, no idea. Crime of the unknown kind. I think we were maybe 15. I do remember the Nashville Mall had a Nugent's. It was a trendy clothing store at the time. And remember, we were 15. I also remember around that time that you had to pay a dime to use the bathroom stall. One last memory about the Nashville Mall. Okay, maybe two. We used to sneak into rated our movies. And I think my first real job was bagging groceries at Alexander's. Remember that? All right, back to Silver City Galleria for a minute. So the mall was decimated, flattened, raised completely. And there was a proposal to build like a ginormous FedEx distribution center there. Well, they turned tail. That proposal was kiboshed. Now, three mega warehouses will be built on that site. Deborah Mello grew up Deborah Marie Wally in Taunton. She had a sister, Carol, a sister, Patricia, and her brothers, Richard and Stephen, both of whom have passed away. Her mother, Marilyn, also passed in 2020. I know that Deborah's father passed away when she was very young, and I learned about her stepfather, Joe Gagnon, who we will talk about coming up. Deborah and her sister, Patricia, were very close and just 18 months apart. Patricia would go on to marry Stephen DeMora, and Deborah would marry Louis Mello. He was the boy two years older and had pursued her since middle school. And soon, Louis wanted to marry Debbie, as she was sometimes called. So she needed to convince her mother, Marilyn, to sign papers that would permit a 16-year-old to be married in Massachusetts. Now, given this timeline, that would be 1985. Deborah had her first child, a daughter, in 1986. They had a second baby, a boy, Louis Jr., in 1990. 
They lived in Taunton and worked for a local Dunkin' Donuts franchise. At the time of Deborah's disappearance, they were running a store in Braintree, about 30 minutes away. And as I understand it, they worked for someone who owned a number of Dunkin' stores. Something occurred to me when I was going through the documents that Steve DeMora sent. The protection order she filled out on March 11th, 1996, and signed Debbie Mello, not Deborah. In it, she states, he makes threats to do bodily harm to himself and me if I leave. It would be better if we try to resolve this while he is out of the home. I am in fear of him and my safety. The date of the order is March 15th, 1996, with the names of her two children listed. They were so young. Her daughter was nine, and her son was just five at the time. And there is a hearing date and time listed. 10 a.m., March 29, 1996. Signed by a judge, Andrew Dooley. I wondered if there was ever a hearing. I wondered if Louis Mello left the home. According to Steve DeMora, Louis Mello was allowed back into the home and that emergency order against him was lifted. Nobody went before the judge. But it is documented. The emergency order from 1996 stating that she was afraid for her safety. What we do know about their relationship by all accounts, Deborah's friends and her family, Louis Mello Sr. was very controlling. Remember, he married a 16-year-old. He was only 18, but he was able to manipulate her before she could understand what was even happening. Remember being 16? We didn't know shit. And I regularly tell you about my stupidity in those days. Thank God I never got married. But what we know about this? Textbook coercive control. And this is not an indictment of Deborah Mello. She was very young. He took advantage of that. Deborah had her first baby a year later. She wasn't even 17 when her daughter came. Louis Mello did not like her to be out. He showed up places she went. And he often followed her when she went to meet her sister or a friend and would be there watching. If she was gone even for a short time, he would call looking for her. I have heard people use the word protective when referring to his behavior. This is not that. This is oppressive. This is manipulative. And this is abusive. And Deborah wanted out. She'd had it. By 2000, she wanted a divorce. She was 30 years old. Her kids were no longer little babies. And she now had a chance to find out who she was and what the next phase of her life would be like. But it was not to be. June 20th, 2000, was the last day anyone had seen or spoken to Deborah Mello. Louis Mello's account, which is all we have to go on, was that she demanded to be let out of the car because they were arguing about money and a purchase that she had made at her dermatology appointment that day. Again, his account is all we have. It was sometime between 3 and 4 p.m. when he allegedly let her out on the side of the very busy Route 18 near the old South Weymouth Naval Air Base, which is, by the way, about 30 miles from where they lived in Taunton. 
Louis Mello said that he let her out of the car, drove away, turned around to come back and find her, but that Deborah was gone. She had left all her personal belongings in the car. Her pocketbook, her wallet, her ID, her cell phone. Nobody does that. By now, you have probably deduced that there is a lot about the story that doesn't add up. And here's my thought on this. If I'm telling you to go fuck yourself, I'm taking all my shit. I'm not leaving any of that with you. Deborah Mello's husband, Louis Mello, made the claim that he went back to find her. She was not there. So he drove home to Taunton and made the trip back to Weymouth. This is story number one. More on that. Stay with me. A listener of this show emailed me about the Deborah Mello case, asking if I would cover it. I was familiar with Deborah's case, and Deborah's case was on my list of stories to research. I connected with Steve DeMora. Steve is Deborah's brother in law. He was married to Deborah's sister, Patricia. The two have children together and have remained involved over these years. Steve knew Deborah. They all went to school together in Taunton. And Steve has been such an important part of telling Deborah's story since 2000. Almost all of the news coverage about Deborah's case has an appearance by Steve Demora. We had been in touch for weeks leading up to this initial conversation. And he recently shared with me the news that Deborah's son, Louis, who was just nine when his mother disappeared, that Louis passed away. Louis A. Mello Jr., age 34, of Taunton, passed away on December 13th, 2023. Children who have their mothers taken away from them the way he did, the way his sister did, well, that is a lot to take. And my heart goes out to his sister and his close friends and family. And this is a family that has seen a lot of loss. This is part one of my conversation with Steve DeMora about the suspicious disappearance of Deborah Mello in June 2000. I know that the news of Deborah's son dying has to be terrible, so I'm sorry to hear that news. I received a phone call from Deborah's uh, daughter recently, a few months back, he got into some trouble. He was acting up, ran from the police and went through a few different towns and had a few different charges from a few different places on him. I've been communicating with him quite a bit over the mm-hmm. phone. So I, I really didn't think that he was going to be out right away. And actually, he uh, he was released to a friend of his. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this It's an unfortunate byproduct of many of, I can't say all of these cases because that's not, that's not true, but many of these kinds of cases that I research and do stories about, children so often suffer as a result. And it's really not just the children. It's just because of one person's decision to Mm -hmm. take care and, and, and do whatever they had done to Deborah. It affected her mother, you know, her sister, her kids. And when you think about this was 20 over 23 years ago, I'm, I'm 52 now. So like this was half of my life. 
Deborah's kids were a 10 and 14. And as we can see about Louie, little Louie, the son, he was a mummy's boy. You know, he just didn't click with the father and things went bad and he was asked to leave the house and he just hung around with the, with the wrong crowd for a long time. The daughter, she's a beautiful girl, looks just like Deborah, And, mm-hmm. you know, she has, you know, a few kids living in town, but one of her replies to me, she's like, I'm, I'm just broken. I, I can't be fixed. There's no therapy. There's nothing that can fix me. Like she went through a lot going through that in a small community that everybody knows your name. Everybody knows who you are. Well, here we are 23 years later, 23 and a half years later. Let's go back in time. There's a lot of history between Deborah and her husband. She was very young when they met. The story, which is what I will explain, like even coming from her sister, Patty, Patty and Deborah went to a middle school together, and that's where Louie went. Right away, he was, you know, going up to her saying that, you know, we're going to be boyfriend, girlfriend, and I'm going to marry you. Fast forward a little bit, still in middle school, you know, they, they started dating, and freshman in high school, I was a freshman at the time in um, 86. Deborah was 16. She mm-hmm. had to get signed papers from her mother to get married. I was actually dating Patty, which is Deborah's sister. We were dating at the time and I went to the wedding when Deborah was 16. Yeah, it was, it, they, they've had a long history for sure. And he, he dropped out of school and they've been working for Dunkin' Donuts, same owner since that day one. And still today, does Louis Mello work for the Dunkin' Donuts company now? I believe so, yes. So you don't have any kind of relationship at all with him anymore. I imagine that ship sailed a long time ago after Deborah disappeared. Yeah, I did have a, a civil relationship while this was going on at first. Louis has a couple of sisters and a brother and the main thing was, you know, making sure that, you know, the kids were taken care of while this was going on because he, he never missed a day of work. Mm-hmm. So in the time, you know, you got these younger kids, 10 and 14, and, you know, we're trying to support them and try to be with them to give them like guidance on like, you know, they had nobody to talk to like their mother mm-hmm. just one day is just not there anymore. The in-laws, you know, his sisters were there and one of them liked me, one of them didn't. Uh, the brother I got along with fine, but, and I had always sp- spoke my mind. I said, if right is right and wrong is wrong, we know that Deborah just didn't leave. Something's going on. And there's, uh, there's a lot that just shows something's wrong here with, you know, with, with Louie. He took a lie detector test with the Taunton police. He failed that. The verbiage that they used was they failed miserably. Then a short time has passed. Things were still actively being, you know, investigated, and he changed his alibi. We can get into that, but after he mm-hmm. changed by, they gave him another lie detector test, and he failed that one. So it was around that time when I was over the house, and I kind of had a few choice words and spoke my mind a little bit, and that's when I was invited to leave. His story from the beginning was 
And please clear up any misconceptions or things that aren't true that you are aware of. His story was Louis Mello, Deborah Mello's husband, was that they drove from Taunton. They went to Weymouth to a doctor's appointment. They got in a fight. Deborah wanted to get out of the car. He reportedly left her in a very high traffic area where she was never seen or heard from again. He claimed he drove back to get her and she was gone. He thought, oh, she'll just come back home to Taunton, which is far from Weymouth for people who aren't from our area in Massachusetts. Is that the story he stuck with? Partially, yes. And then some things did change. A quick summary of that was they worked together in Braintree on Ivory Street at a Dunkin' Donuts. Deborah actually told the owner's daughter, hey, I want to leave. I want a divorce. We're going to leave. We're going to separate. I want you to transfer me to another facility, you know, another Dunkin' Donuts where I can run the front and not be working with him. So aside from that, on June 20th, after work, they left. They went to a doctor's office where Deborah went in to the doctor's office. And I do know people that work at the doctor's office in Weymouth. And she absolutely did go into the office. She got some facial products, some skincare products. She bought and paid for them. Didn't appear to be in a rush. She wasn't in a hurry. And when she left, she had the bag that had the purchased products in there with her belongings. And she went into the car. That's kind of where everything stops. His first story was, we got into a fight. I let her Well, she got out of the car after the fight, right before the overpass of the T on Route 18. He went up over the overpass, turned around, came back. She was nowhere to be found. So he left Weymouth and went to Taunton, where the kids were. Now, she was 14, so she could be home alone with little Louie. They went home. Louis drove home, went to the house, and said, we got into a fight and your mother's not here, so I'm going to go back to look for her. And that's what his first story was. He ordered pizza from a Papa Gino's in Rainham. The first story, again, was he was home, confirmed he was home. He ordered pizza that was confirmed, time-stamped and everything, had pizza delivered to the house. He said, I went back to Weymouth to look for her. And he didn't come home until late hours. That was story A. After talking to family and friends and, you know, trying to figure this out, somebody, and I'll I'll just say somebody that I know, whether it was a friend, family, or whoever, but someone that we know saw him in Taunton at the time where he definitely should have been in Weymouth. So the police brought him in, questioned him, and then he says, yeah. You're right. I didn't go back to look for her. I was in Taunton. So I'm like, damn, now what do we do with that? If all our eggs were in one basket and she was supposed to be in Weymouth, well, that's where that's where everything needs to be. That's where all the attention is supposed to go is in Weymouth. But now he's saying, you're right. I, I was in Taunton. I didn't go back. So like, if that's a catch. Like, What do you do if he's throwing a bluff and saying, yeah, no, I never went back. And maybe he did go back. But if he's saying that I never went back, 
now he's thinking they're not going to look in Weymouth because I told them I was in Taunton. So Weymouth is clear. But then we do have evidence in Taunton that he was here. So if something is in Weymouth, now he's telling us, yeah, I'm in Taunton. I never went back. So like he's kind of like covered either way. When was Deborah officially reported missing and by whom? On June 21st, which was the following day, Alyssa called my wife at the time, Patty, Deborah's sister, and said, hey, auntie, mommy never came home last night. What do you, what do you mean? She's like, dad said that she just, she's not home. So he said, well, can you send me your father's, where's your father now? He said, oh, he's at work. Do you know the number to his work? She said, yeah. So Patty got the phone number to the Dunkin' Donuts in Braintree. She called him, said, Louie, where's my sister? And he had a little bit of a, a not a stutter all the time, but, you know, he kind of spoke broken English from, with Portuguese and stuff. But when he was nervous, I, you know, I, uh, 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 you know, it's kind of one of those things. And she's like, did you do anything to my sister? And no, no. So I found out and I was working construction at the time. And when I came back to um, the place where we had all the trucks and everything, I got the notification that I got a phone call. So I called Patty and she said, something's up with Deborah. I don't know where she is. I, we were in Taunton, so we drove from Taunton to Weymouth. And by the time we got to Weymouth, that was around 2.30 in the afternoon on the 21st. And Patty advised Louie, like, you need to go to the police station and report her missing. So we talked to a Detective Javazi in Weymouth and clearly stated how we felt and what was going on. And they did do a, a, a good job. They had, you know, some aerial searching. Right across the street from this doctor's office, it was the old military base, kind of deserted for quite some time. So that was like, geez, well, this is a perfect area if you're going to put somebody, you know. But they did have, you know, police in, you know, searches up and down Route 18, absolutely, because I took quite a bit of time off of work after that. So everything in the first, I'd say, I don't know, four or five days, everything led us to Weymouth. Nowhere mm -hmm. else, Weymouth. Mm -hmm. So we were hanging posters and, you know, into, you know, talking to people, trying to, you know, work with the police, everything. Then just about a week later, we had some stories changed by Louis and then the whole alibi changed and now we're okay now we got to start going in Taunton I start going over the routes this is the way that he goes from point A to point B if he was followed I found that out and now again this is 23 years ago so a lot of the Dunkin Donuts back then they all had kitchens or whatever if you will mm -hmm. he was working at another one at nighttime and he'd work the other one like sometimes during the day and, you know, not like full shifts, but he, he worked a lot, absolutely worked a lot. So he was doing both. He was followed to both to try to see, okay, where are the routes that he takes? What's by there? I hired a, a private investigator to follow him and, you know, see what they could find. Obviously in the end, nothing, nothing became of it. What did they present to you, the investigator? 
I have a, a bunch of different papers from them. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot, you know, nothing crazy. I mean, it was tough because I actually had a fundraiser shortly after to try to raise money to pay for these. Because at the time, you know, I had three kids and trying to deal with the family and, you know, having Patty, Deborah's sister, take care of the kids while I'm out night and day. And I've talked to hundreds of people that are psychics, mediums, ad readers, people that think they're psychics, everybody, you know, Maureen Hancock, John Edwards, like we've seen them all. And there's for every one person that has, you know, credentials where they see something or know something or hear something. I have 30 of them that are just, Hey, I'm not a psychic, but I think she's over here. I I had to follow every lead that I thought was a possibility. What was the Taunton police department? What was their behavior like when this is all going on? Chief Oberg was actually one of the first people to say that he had suspicious activity and he's a um, person of interest because otherwise, so we had Weymouth and Braintree police in on this whole investigation because, Mm -hmm. you know, somewhere along this story, we may touch a base. Um, Everybody's first rumor was across the street from the Dunkin' Donuts in Braintree was the landfill where the incinerators were and what time they pick up the trash from the dumpster and have that emptied. It's certainly not like it was just in this story where took care of his wife and put her in different places recently found, you know, like some clothes, a a saw blade and all that stuff. The police work that they did, I do believe that they did the best that they could. You know, but again, 23 years later, I I was just speaking to the state trooper who's now uh, not in the original people of that were working on it Mm -hmm. because three years later, you know, I've, I've seen a a couple of, you know, troopers that have passed away. They moved, they retired. If they were close to retirement and then now we're here, yeah, 23 years later, they're going on the notes from every department, but we had Norfolk County. DA's office. We had Bristol County DA's office. We had Taunton, a little bit of Rainham involvement, Weymouth, Braintree. So it's one of those things where people that my age, if you were to say to them, like back in the day, 23 years ago, the state police did not work with local police. They were higher above them. They really Mm -hmm. didn't work with local police. They had their own duties. They had their own jobs. Now, the state police is all over the place. And, and they, they work well, you know, with the local police departments. And at first, nope, she was reported missing in Norfolk County. This is Weymouth's case. It's not ours. She just lives in Taunton. Then Louie changed the alibi. All right, now you don't have a choice. Now you got to take this because now Norfolk County is involved, very much involved. But because he changed his alibi, now Bristol County State Police has taken the lead. So when you say he changed his alibi, does that mean she got out of the car in Weymouth, he left and never went back, he stayed in Taunton the whole time? Is that what you mean by changing his alibi, that he never actually went back to look for her? Correct. Mm -hmm. So I myself can just think of a hundred questions. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Is it true? Is it not true? Does he want us to believe he was in Taunton or does he want us to believe that he was in Weymouth? I, I that's the 
that's the hundred dollar question, you know. You know, she disappeared the last time anybody saw Deborah Mello, June twentieth, two thousand. For a little bit of perspective, Deborah went missing on the twentieth. Yes. Molly Bish went missing seven days later. Yeah. So that had to affect the search quite a bit in the attention. It did. So seven days later, that was a huge story that hit. And because she was a child, right away, state police and FBI can get involved into this a, a thousand times back in the day. The only reason why FBI could get involved is if, number one, they were asked by another agency, mm-hmm. if they're under the age of 16, if they went out of state lines, or if there was a ransom note. So yes, Molly Bish went missing seven days later. And that was around the time when Louis changed his alibi. So I, I started making all kinds of searches and I was looking all around Taunton. He still lives in a house that's a stone throw um, from some wooded areas where the Taunton River is. And he lives a stone throw from Taunton High School, which has a bunch of wooded areas behind it. So that was a very convenient place to look. So we went there and it was at the time, uh, shortly after, and I have all my notes documenting, I said, I'm not getting anywhere. Like, I need to have law enforcement helping this search. So I went to the mayor's office, spoke to the mayor, and I said, listen, I get it, but I named the the woman that was the canine officer for Bristol County. We had one real good canine dog, and he he was in Warren, Mass. at Molly Bish. Uh-huh. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like, I got to have some type of a priority. I get it that she was an adult. So the first question is, she's an adult. She can make her own decision. Would she just take off and, you know, leave? So I spoke to the mayor and the assistant. And then I went to the police chief, you know, and I said, respectfully, you know, I'm trying, I'm doing this respectfully. I, I'm not getting the help that I need. And I need to stop making the higher up officials look bad because I'm not getting that help that Deborah needs. I mean, there was no social media other than, you know, um, I can't even remember the name now. It was nothing like it is now. So I did it, like I said, respectfully, and I just kept it in-house between the chief and the mayor, and I got confirmation that afternoon. I named three different space, you know, places where I felt to be searched. They also agreed, and we had a confirmation date and time when that search started. And with the Molly Bish whole thing, it was maybe a month and a half, two months went by, it was very stagnant. There was nothing going on. We were still investigating. It was not closed at all, but there was just no activity, you know, for law officials, you know, in the media. If I had something, you know, I still have all my connections to all the radio stations and, and television stations, but there was nothing happening. And it was kind of stagnant as well for Molly Bish. Reached out to them and they came down and went to the, a prayer vigil that we had. We went there and, and supported them as well. And then that's when the media was like, wow, look at this. We got two families a week apart. And, you know, they're bonding together to try to get answers for their family. So that was another story. And I didn't care what the story or how it got into the media. I just wanted it into the media. I put 
some advertising posters on the back of the Gatra buses, which is a local bus that just takes you to local places. We did a lot of, I don't know, how do you say it? Trying to figure out how we can keep Deborah's name in the, in the media with different stories or, you know, doing things, which shortly after coming up on a year now, Molly Bish, the foundation, the family, you know, I called up originally to try to talk to John and Maggie and they're like, they're like the Wizard of Oz. You can't talk to them. They have a foundation like right away. And it was like an organization that was handling all the publicity, all the media. They were handling, you know, all the police things, you know, and they were just kind of like in the background. So I left my name and number and who I was. They reached out to me. We went up almost to the year after Deborah's disappearance because it was one year. So we were pretty good with the community in the city of Taunton. She was front page. Still no answers, you know, for local missing woman. So myself, my ex-mother-in-law and my wife at the time, we drove to Warren, Mass, and we attended a prayer vigil that they had. And then when we came back, I was living the life where I never knew who was going to be approaching me, who I was going to to ask questions. So it was just, there was a surprise around every corner. So I was always kind of like on guard. So we came home that evening and it was already dark out from attending the Molly Bish's prayer vigil. And there was somebody like walking in my front yard, like standing there. And I'm like, all right, here we go. Like what's going on now? So I get out and I started walking towards him and he kind of put his hands up and he says, is your father Joe? Now my father's name is not Joe, but my father-in-law's name is Joe. I said, yeah, why? He said, dude, you need to go down to CB Billiards. I'm like, why? He said, you need to go down there now. So CB Billiards was behind the old Taunton Mall. CB Billiards was like a pool hall, a stone throw from my where I was living. So I drove down there. And as I'm driving down, lights in the sky was like it was daytime. It was unbelievable. And I pulled up on the side street. There's fire trucks down there with the ladders extended, lights dropping down, lights everywhere, caution tape everywhere. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? So I walked over to the police line, do not cross. And this Taunton police officer I knew lifted up the caution tape. So I went under it and I looked at him. I'm like, am I supposed to be here? He said, I think so. I'm like, are you kidding me? So Joe, which was my father-in-law, behind that CB billiards, there were train tracks. And that's where some people just hung out, drank beers. And there was like a little gathering area over there by the tracks. Long story short, to sum up what happened there was Joe was there with three or four other guys, all just sitting around, just talking, because there was a liquor store right down the road, so they could just walk there and hang out, and no one really bother them. There was a newspaper, and they were talking about Deborah, and Stephen Kamara ended up having a few choice words, probably because of the, under the influence of alcohol, about what he thought or whatever to her, F her, whatever. Joe didn't like that. They got into a little fight, so he took off. Joe stayed there with a couple other guys. Stephen Kamara came back. He picked up a steel pipe and hit him a few times and killed her father-in-law. Add that to my story. Oh, my gosh. While I was there, that's when I needed to identify the body, which they wouldn't actually let me see. I had to identify some tattoos in a description of my father-in-law protecting his stepdaughter. He went to jail right away. 
he did like three and a half something years before we went to trial. Then he got 18 years plus the time served and he's out. I got a phone call in a letter maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, saying that he's going to be getting out just to let us know. He did try to go for early release five or six years ago on good behavior and everything. They got a hold of me and they said, are you going to attend? And I was like, I've never done anything like this. Like, I don't know. What am I supposed to be doing? Magistrate or whoever has just basically said that he's going to go to try to get out. And I'm like, well, I haven't even had a moment to even think about like what's going on. So if I had to guess, just, yeah, just say that I'm going to go. So as soon as the magistrate heard that, they went back and then they're like, okay, forget it. We're not going to go. So we're not going to go for the early release. Because if they think that someone is going to go to oppose what they want, and there's a good chance they're not going to get it. And it's so tough because I know a few people that are related to that Stephen Camara. I know my father-in-law. I mean, they were both drinking. Some of my good friends, when they drink, they can be a jerk. Never mind my father-in-law or this other guy, Stephen Camara. So who's at fault? Obviously, he murdered them. So he's at fault. But was he in the right state of mind? I want to be a good person and say, I forgive. But it's so damn hard. It's really hard because you've seen all of this sorrow firsthand. I'm 52 and she's been gone for 23 years. You know, so I was just a young father trying to make ends meet and have a family. And then I get handed all this. I had to um, get Joe's biological daughter to sign off because she didn't want anything to do with anything. So she was the only living heir that was his biological daughter because Patty and Deborah were stepdaughters. So she had to sign some paperwork and then I took care of his remains and had the the services for him. But it's just tough. Like it was just like one thing after another. How did this all fall on you, Steve? It's a massive responsibility that you undertook. I think some of that has to be with, um, my father was full Portuguese, so I'm half. And us Portuguese people are just driven pretty hard, like we just determined. But I don't, I don't think it was an option. I don't mm-hmm. think it was ever an option. I've known Deborah since I was 16, 15, and she went missing. So I, I've known her for 15 years. Like that little Louie, I was with my wife at the time dating when little Louie was born. And now he's he was 10 at the time. So it was, like I said, it was never an idea that should I get involved? Should I just kind of let the police handle this? I just have to do my thing. Like if, if there's something that I know, the police only can do so much. And that was, that's been like the biggest kind of a catch from day one. In order for the police to go investigate into your backyard and to physically walk in your backyard and start searching because a good source told them there might be something back there. He was friends with this guy and they were both over there. Maybe 23 years later is a little bit different, but back then there's so many red line areas that just makes you go through in hoops and hurdles. So when I was talking to people, I could walk into anybody's backyard. And if you had a problem with me, then we would have words. Or if I explained my story, I'm hoping that I would get the compassion from somebody and be like, Oh, what do you, Oh my gosh. Like, let's go take a look. Oh, what are you, what are you looking at? I mean, I've been into vacant buildings, you know, cemeteries, just everywhere, you know, all hours of the night, all hours during the day, wooded areas, 
I had to not take the lead, but I would filter out because a, a lot this still to this day, 23 years later, I still have a ton of people that do not want to be involved with the police, would rather send me an email, a Facebook message, or have a friend contact me that happened three days ago. And I believe something was here, or I believe this, or I believe this story. And then I would look into it, and then I would give the police my notes. There is quite a lot to this story. And 23 years later, 23 and a half years later, Deborah Mello is still missing. There has been no conclusion. No remains have been found. No one held responsible for her disappearance. This is part one of two. I will share the second half of my conversation with Steve DeMora, Deborah Mello's brother-in-law and longtime friend. He first met Deborah when he too was a teenager. A few important points to make before I wrap up this episode and prepare part two for release. Two crime of the truest kind live events. One has been announced Thursday, March 7th at Off Cabot in Beverly. The second one has not yet been announced. That is Thursday, February 15th at Faces Brewing in Malden. I have a special guest for that one. I will be talking with author and Boston Globe crime writer, Emily Sweeney. Emily Sweeney currently has a weekly column. You can sign up for their newsletter covering Massachusetts cold cases. We're going to talk Massachusetts unsolved. That will be announced next week. Tickets will be on sale. Pick one date, come to both. Crime of the Truest Kind, online crimeofthetruestkind.com. Follow the show at Crime of the Truest Kind. Be a buddy. Tell a friend. My name is Angel Wood. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Brand new Patreon content in January 2024. Thank you for your support and your patience. This has been quite a ride. Thank you for listening. Happy New Year. Lock your goddamn doors. Thank you.